Good morning. Welcome to Harvest Bible Church. We are in the context of uh, this particular passage in the garden, or I should say in the upper room, what's called the upper room discourse of, uh, of our Lord Jesus. On the night before he died, he was participating in, in the Passover meal, which he made into what we call today the Lord's Supper, also called the Eucharist, uh, whereby Jesus said, I will eat this meal again, but it won't be until I return in my kingdom. And we'll eat the fruit of this vine and we will celebrate, and that's what we wait for today. We wait for that return of our Lord for that celebratory meal that our Lord will bring to us when he brings himself. Uh, he has had this meal, and he has gone around the table, and he said, guys, there is a betrayer, a, a, a traitor among us. And they all began to ask, is it me? Is it me? Even Judas, what we assume, was wondering, well, wait a minute, I know what I'm up to, but is that who he's talking about? Is that what he's talking about? But we saw early in Luke's uh, gospel, in, I'm sorry, in chapter 22 and verse 3, we see that Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. So on this night, on April the 2nd of A.D. 33, just a few hours before Jesus is arrested, arrested uh, his betrayer has gone out to fetch those who will come and arrest Jesus. While Judas is gone, they move from their upper room in Jerusalem, wherever it might be. We don't know exactly where it is. In fact, if you visit Jerusalem today, um, there is a place where they think it could have been. And we go up there and we look around and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a room. And this could have been where Jesus was. It's uh, really not that big a deal. But uh, to think that he might have been there is, is pretty neat. We just don't know for sure. It was an upper room. And from there, even if you walk it today from Jerusalem in an upper room in Jerusalem, you would walk out of the city and you would walk down through what's called the Kidron Valley. Today it's across the five lanes of highway in Jerusalem and you would walk up towards the Mount of Olives. At the base of the Mount of Olives is a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means wine press. And so there's this garden and it's full of trees even today. Uh, we were there just last year at this time, and uh, we had a wonderful time there. We had a, a place. Our, our leader had gotten us a separated place from all the crowds, and it was just our little section of the garden, and we got to just sit there and be peaceful. It's a wonderful place to be peaceful in the midst of a very large city, uh, and it is a beautiful place. Uh, Jesus was apparently and his disciples staying there. It says in chapter 22, verse 39, and he, the pronoun speaks of Jesus, he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. So he leaves there in tow, and he goes to this place. It says in verse 40, Luke only says, when he arrived at the place, he said to them. Um, go over to Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 26, over to your left. Matthew actually gives, and Mark, they give a much fuller picture uh, that Luke summarizes a bit. But let's get the whole picture from Matthew and a little bit from John. Um, we see in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, um, the, as I've told you before, the, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptics. Uh, they say essentially the same thing from three different standpoints. John's Gospel is written much later. Uh, John, we believe, was the latest, the last, I should say, disciple to, to be living, last living apostle. And he wrote his uh, his rendition of the gospel events, none of which contradict each other. It's just four different point of views. In Matthew 26, 36, Matthew says, Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane. Luke doesn't say Gethsemane. He just calls it the place. And he says it's at the Mount of Olives, which is where exactly where it is. And he said to his disciples, Luke leaves this out. He says, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That's James and John. And he began to be grieved and distressed. 
Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. If you want to keep your place there in Matthew, um, then, then do so, because I'll come back to it uh, later. But let's go back to Luke. Luke 22. So we know from Luke's gospel and Matthew, Mark and John, uh, he's in this garden and he's going to pray. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Would you be praying if you knew what you were going to face, the death? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm on my knees praying before any sermon, but I was definitely on there today because I had to lead the music. It's out of my comfort zone and, and I'm scared out of my mind to do it, quite frankly. Um, and so, uh, you know, before the I don't my son, a couple of um, times ago when I led the music, I had my son up there playing guitar with me. He was standing where, where Bill normally sits, uh, plays guitar. And, and I was complaining, I just don't know if I have it. I don't know if I had it. And I got scolded by my son, which is strange because he's never done that before. Dad, you have this. You get it. You understand. Just play and enjoy it. Well, that's easy for you. You're a musician. I, 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 I don't ever want to get to the point playing music where I think I've got it. That's the last place you want to be. Is when you say, yeah, I got this, don't worry. Strum the wrong chord and sing the wrong note, blah, blah, blah. But that kind of fear, that, that on ground, in a place where you're not comfortable, will put you on your knees, won't it? And Jesus was on his knees. He wanted to pray. And so he goes to this garden. It's late at night. They participated in the, the Passover feast, which happens at sundown. Uh, he has uh, taught his, his disciples. We see that in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's a longer night than the synoptics give to us, at least in the teaching. By the time they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's late. And that's what Luke says in verse 40. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you will not enter into temptation. Why is he telling them to pray that they not enter into temptation? What temptation was there? Well, our context goes back to verse 31 in the same chapter. I know we break it up week to week because we only get an hour. But Jesus had told them just prior in verse 31, Simon, Simon, speaking to Peter, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you like wheat, to shake your faith, he's saying. Satan, the prince of darkness, the ruler of this present darkness has asked me, the ruler of heaven and earth, he's asked to shake your faith. He wants all of you, Peter. But Jesus said, but I've prayed for you, verse 32, that your faith may not fail. And so knowing that Satan's out there, Jesus didn't say, nope, you can't shake their faith. I'll not let you. No more so than God wouldn't let Satan shake Job's faith. And so Satan is out there. He's, he's indwelling Judas Iscariot, who's betraying Jesus. Jesus knows that Satan is on the prowl. And so he tells the disciples, guys, come here. We're going to a private place. Stay here and pray. Pray that you not fall into temptation. There's a difference between God testing us and us falling into temptation. When the devil is out there, he knows our weaknesses. He knows what gets us. Used to be a gentleman that went to this church, and he said, Satan has a tackle box. That was his way of thinking, a tackle box with different lures. Now, if you're a fisherman and you fish, you know that you throw one lure out, and the fish aren't biting. You pull it back in, you break it off, you put another one in. You're waiting to find the one that the fish are biting on that day. That's what Satan does. It's a great illustration. Some people fall for materialism. I'll just throw some materialistic things at them. Some people fall for sensual pleasures. Some people fall for leisurely pleasures. Some people, we're going to fall for something, aren't we? Every one of us. We're wicked in our minds. And Satan's just looking for that. He's looking for what tempts us. You know what tempts you. 
And Jesus is saying, pray for yourselves that you not fall into that. I think the best way to do that is locate in your mind, what is it that I'm tempted to do? Maybe you have an affinity towards alcohol or drugs, and you know that you do. You don't want to be near that. So you don't want to go near that because you're going to be tempted to take a drink. It could be anything, any of our temptations. Pray that you not fall into it means locate in your mind what can get you. Pray that you won't fall there. Pray that you won't go there. Satan wants all the apostles. And Jesus tells him, pray that you will not fall into temptation. How many of you know when you know there's something you need to be praying for on your knees? And you say, no, I, I'd, I'd rather lay down. And so you lay down and, and you don't even remember finishing your prayer the next morning. Fall asleep, right? That can be the temptation. Sometimes you need to stand by your bed at night or in the morning whenever you pray with your eyes open. The worst thing to do at night is to lay down in your bed with your eyes closed and pray. Amen? I mean, that's just ridiculous. I've done it a thousand million times, and I will do it again, no doubt. But it's a great way to go to sleep. But when, when there's temptation lurking, stand up. Hold your, your head up high and your eyes open, and don't fall asleep. Get out what you need to pray, and then lie down and fall asleep praying. Jesus knows. Those guys don't seem to have any idea what's happening, but Jesus has taken them, and we know from Matthew's gospel he's taken the 12, which is really only 11 at this point. Judas is left, and he takes eight of them and says, guys, you stay here. I'm taking Peter, James, and John. They're going to go further with me into the garden. Guys, you stay here and pray, not to fall into temptation. I'm going to go over there. Luke says a stone's throw away, so just not far away in this garden. It's not a very large garden even now. Pray that you would not enter into temptation. Verse verse 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. Now, what I said earlier from Matthew's gospel, Matthew says that he tells the disciples that he was very grieved to the point of death. I want you to think about that for a minute. Grieved to the point of death. Have you ever been so grief-stricken? It's not that you would rather die, it's that you feel like death. I just want to die. I feel death. I've, I've been in many times where I want to die, but I have felt, I've truly felt it in my body, grief that's so deep that it felt like death. Not that I know what death feels like, but I assume that's what death must feel like. That kind of grief, your heart beats hard. You hurt. Your physical body hurts over a mental distress, and it just lingers. And and what makes it worse is you know that there's nothing that can make it better anytime soon. This is where Jesus was. In fact, um, the uh, the J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament puts it like this. He said, Jesus was in terrible distress and misery. And the Weymouth translation says he was crushed with anguish. That's where our Lord was in his humanity. Now, we see a distinction here between our Lord Jesus Christ and his humanity and his deity. It's all humanity here. Jesus is showing how he felt. We get an insight into his state of mind on that night. It's not like he was going in going, I'll be fine. It's all good. What are you worried about? Don't you hate people like that? You're down and you're struggling with something. Ah, you'll be fine. You'll be all right. I love to say that to my, my daughter, really. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. She loves to repeat it back to me. You'll be all right. Dad, I feel like you'll be all right. If you want to make lots of friends, just tell them that all the time. You'll be all right. <laughs> Try not to do that unless you're just trying to be dumb. Listen to people. If they're hurting, listen to them. 
Let them, this is what Jesus is trying to convey. I, I've, I've learned that when you're in that state, at least when I was in that state, I couldn't get anybody to listen to me. I mean, it was difficult to try to convey that. I had one lady at the church tell me back when I was in that state, uh, she said, Lance, we are waiting for you to finish bleeding so you can get up off the ground and lead us again. Thank you, but I just want to bleed. I got to bleed for a while. And, and there's a time to bleed and there's a time to patch it up, move on with things. But it is that feeling. And that's where Jesus was in this moment. He was crushed with anguish, as Weymouth says. In the end of verse 41, he knelt down and began to pray. Here's what he prayed. Saying, Father, this is God the Son speaking to God the Father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That's an amazing prayer from the Son of God, isn't it? from the Son of Man, from God in flesh, taking on human flesh, knowing what awaits Him. Now, it would be bad enough if it was just the death on a cross. But Jesus has to go through many horrible atrocities before He gets to the cross. Betrayed by a friend? That's never easy. Turned over to the authorities, your own people. Jesus is Jewish. He's going to be turned over to Jewish authorities. People who make up lies about you, who spit upon you, who put a crown of thorns on your head and, and mock your, your kingship, put a bag over your head and beat you with a stick, and say, prophesy, king, who hit you? And then nail you to a cross after they've whipped you senselessly and laugh at you for six hours on a cross. That would be one thing, but that's not what Jesus is trying to be delivered from. Jesus has already stated in Matthew and Luke's gospel, do not fear man. Do not fear that man can put you to death. Fear the one who has the power to damn your soul to the eternal fires of hell. That's the one we fear. And by the way, my friends, that's who Jesus fears here. It's not so much the cross. It's not the death. Jesus is not afraid of those things. He said not to be afraid. Jesus is fearing the cup, the cup. Turn over with me to John's gospel, just over to the right. It's the next one over in chapter 18. The cup. In the Bible, there's the wrath of God is often depicted as a cup, especially in the book of Revelation, a cup of wrath, a cup of the wine of God's fury, drinking the cup of wrath. That, that's what it's, how it's depicted and Jesus, later on, he tells um, Peter, and we'll get to this in our, our message today, but in 1811, it says, so Jesus said to Peter, after Peter swung a sword at one of the, the people in the crowd that night, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? What cup did the Father give to Jesus to drink? What does he mean? Peter's out there swinging a sword trying to kill the enemy, and Jesus is talking about a cup. It's a metaphor for wrath. The cup of God's wrath, back in Luke. And Jesus is saying, if you would, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup, remove the wrath that's coming upon me. Wouldn't you pray that? You're thinking, why would Jesus pray that? Go over with me back. Let's go back to Matthew 26. It just gives us a fuller context. Because he prays this 
three times. Matthew 26, verse 39 says, And Jesus, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. In his darkest hour, on the darkest night the earth has ever known, in our Lord's deepest distress, with his three closest friends, that he asked, guys, will you pray with me? What are they doing when he returns to them? They're sleeping. He asked them. Verse 40, he found that, came to disciples, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you could not keep watch with me for one hour? It's late at night. One hour of prayer. Jesus has been praying for one hour. Lord, Father, may this cup of your wrath pass from me. So Jesus tells him in verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus sees that the devil is there trying to put them to sleep. Instead of praying as they should, he tells them the spirit is willing or your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Isn't that true of all of us? I want to do the right thing, don't you? My flesh is weak. Went away again, second time, Matthew 26, 42, and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Again, he left them again. He went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to them and found them sleeping again. So we see, although Luke doesn't say it, is that Jesus had his three buddies with him, and he goes away on three occasions, perhaps for an hour at a time, praying, Father, if it's possible. If there's another way to redeem humanity, will you let that be your will? Instead of me taking on all of your wrath? I want you to look at that cross behind me. That cross, what the cross signifies is the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. The cross is not a good thing. Not then. In hindsight, we see it as a, a symbol of, of greatness, of love. It's a horrible thing to be nailed to a cross. Because up to Jesus, people would be nailed to a cross. It was capital punishment. But Jesus' death isn't about anything he's done deserving capital punishment. It's about a man taking the wrath of God on himself so that believers won't have to. We are the ones that deserve that cross. That cross is meant for us. So when our Lord went there, when Jesus of Nazareth went there, he went there to say, Lord, I'll take the spanking, as it were. Spank me. Hit me. Pour out all of your wrath on me so that I'll take the penalty for their sins. Except that God didn't demand blood from Jesus where he just pricks his finger and lets the blood drip. It's not about blood. Blood is a metaphor for death in the Bible. People talk about the blood of Jesus. Will the blood of Jesus cover? It's the death of Jesus. That's what the blood means. It's not the juice. It's the death. And so Jesus knows what he's going to endure. A human. I'm going to go to a cross. And all of the wrath of God is going to come upon me for all the sins of mankind. Father, if there's another way, I'm wide open to it. But he qualifies it, doesn't he? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. 
Was the Son of God's will against God the Father? No, not at all. If there's another way, Jesus teaches us how to pray in the worst times. He proves that you can be so depressed and so ridden with anguish and agony if it's for the right reasons. Not over the loss of, a, of your, your favorite team that didn't win the Super Bowl or the loss of all of your wealth. Depression here and praying for something that is clearly outside the will of God the Father is absolutely okay sometimes. We don't have to beat ourselves up to pray in a way that, Lord, here's what I would like. I'm ordering this up. Here's what I would like. In the name of Jesus, grant me this, but if it's not your will, to God be the glory. Not my will, yours be done. When you leave that caveat off and you don't get what you want, you will shake your fist at God. And you know the thing is, is God always answers prayer. When you don't get what you want, he answered, didn't he? Uh, the answer is uh, no. Eeny, meeny, miny, no. There's so many ways to say it. And so God the Son was denied. And yet, all he wanted was his Father's will. Probably, or perhaps I should say, over a three-hour time period, Jesus goes back praying this. His buddies are asleep. So in his anguish, note verse 43, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Isn't that beautiful? It doesn't say that he did anything but, but strengthened him. We don't know how he strengthened him. We don't know what he did. He didn't come up and say, it'll be all right. You'll be all right. But there's a strengthening process that God the Father sends an angel to God the Son and his humanity to give him strength. Have you ever had somebody that just said, in your darkest hour, I'm with you? Or maybe they didn't say anything and they were just with you? Or they touched you? Or they cried with you? And it gave you strength? You've been there. Maybe you've done that for someone else. Sometimes that's all it is. The worst thing you can do sometimes is, is come up with a sermon when someone has lost a loved one. They don't need a sermon. Did Job need those three friends telling him all the things that they thought he had done wrong? They were really good for the first seven days when they did what? Said nothing. Said nothing. And so God sent this angel to strengthen him. Note verse 44, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, because of the simile, the word like, it could be that it's not necessarily sweating blood, but there is a condition called, if you're an MD, forgive my, my, uh, my, tra- my pronunciation, but hematidrosis. If I'm doing the emphasis on the wrong syllable, forgive me, but hematidrosis, hema meaning, meaning blood, it's a condition under great physical or emotional stress whereby the, the capillaries, you know, the subcutaneous blood vessels burst, mix with sweat glands, mix with your sweat, and exit through the sweat glands where you actually sweat blood. It's a known condition. In fact, it can be fatal, I read. This is where our Lord was. This is the pain and anguish, the agony of which he's in. 
No wonder God sent an angel. But God didn't ordain that he die in Gethsemane. God ordained that he die on Calvary the following day. Hence the strengthening. And we have Dr. Luke, who is an MD, is a doctor. He's the only one that brings this up. Falling down upon the ground. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He doesn't say, get up and pray for me, guys. I'm really struggling. He doesn't tell them to pray for anything other than their own temptation. Jesus seeing the world around them that they cannot see. Sees the demons, the satanic infiltration, wanting to have them. Maybe they don't see it. But they're like, they're a group of people, and they're like surrounding them are a group of lions, roaring and wanting their flesh, spiritually speaking. I remember watching years ago, when I would watch it with the old um, Survivor, they did one, and it was in Africa. And I remember they were all, they were circled in, and there were lions roaring everywhere. They were all scared out of their minds. I was scared for them. And I never forget that scene. I remember that the winner of that season and, and what he said and what they were going through is, there are lions out there. And I, I saw that that's, that's our condition. I mean, 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says it's the same way. He says, beware of your adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We go about life thinking, ah, oh, we're good. But if that's what's going on around, then our prayer to not fall into temptation should be our prayer quite regularly for ourselves and for others. So while telling them, and we know at this point from the other Gospels that this is the third time Jesus has come back to them, pray that you won't fall into temptation. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. Now, I want you to note something here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote the gospel accounts some number of years after these events happened. Not long, but afterward. If you were writing about what happened in the past from Judas, would you say, um, while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and one called Judas, would you say, would you just call him one of the twelve? Or would you not put that low-life scoundrel. I notice that none of them did. None of them did. What a great time to do it. And who would blame them? That horrible devil. Jesus called him a devil in John chapter 6, verse 70. He was a devil. He could have said, uh, one of Judas, as Jesus previously referred to him as a devil. No, they just call him one of the 12. And the reason I love that is because they didn't take the opportunity to bash him, probably because the writers knew they could easily have been just like him. When you see people out there today, and there are many to see, who are committing great sins, horrible sins, and you wonder, what is the deal with the world going on today? Just remind yourself of the grace of God that saved you, that shows you how wicked the modern behavior is. Because if you did not, if we did not have Christ, we would give in to the same things the world does. We would. 
Oh, it might be of a different variety here and there, but we would fall into it. Your average rock star, look at the life they live. If you've ever listened to them on on Dan Rather with the big interview or something, and how they talk about their life as a rock star, what they did, how they lived their lives, you think, oh, man, how perverted, how horrible. How did you get through that? Not all did, but the ones he's interviewing did. You think, "I, I could be that way. If it weren't for Jesus Christ, I would absolutely be that way. Why wouldn't I be? And so I love the fact that they don't take aim at him, even though he's the worst sinner that ever lived. And so while Jesus is talking to the sleepy-headed disciples, I imagine that they woke up. They've had three naps now. They wake up with a bedhead. Guys, pray that you're not falling into temptation. All of a sudden, on the scene, comes Judas, one of the twelve, preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. Go over to Matthew. Go back to Matthew. Actually, go to John. John 18. Gives a better picture. John 18. We know why Judas appeared in this garden, because he knew all about the garden. He knew where it was. He knew that Jesus went there a lot, because he was with him. John 18. They've gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane. 18.1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received, note this, this is who he brings with him. Luke just makes it look like Judas is there with a few people. John tells us in verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Strange to arrest Jesus with that. And so I'm back in Luke. Luke just said there's a crowd, and Judas comes up, one of the twelve. He approached Jesus to kiss him. This kiss, by the way, was a typical greeting back then. It wasn't a kiss on the, wasn't a smooch. You would have embraced, kiss on the right cheek, the left cheek. You've seen that. Here it was done for it was done for rabbis, it was done for people in, in prominent positions. Judas could have shown up with the crowd in tow, with all the, the, the weapons of warfare, to this hardened criminal, our Lord Jesus, and said, There he is, guys, get him. I think it's interesting that this kiss we learned from Matthew and Mark was a sign. See, no one knew who Jesus was. He's such a horrible person, no one even knows who he is. Judas has to mark him with a kiss. But what he doesn't do is come up and say, there he is, get him. I'm guessing this. I'm adding. This is me reading between the lines. But I think Judas was still trying to stay underneath the radar. If he came up and just walked up and greeted Jesus with a kiss, Mark says, he says, hail rabbi, which means good day to you. How you doing? I think that Judas is trying to, he's got this facade. I'll go greet him and then I'll look like I'm in a horror when all these people come arrest him. And I can save face. That's what I think. I think that's why I kissed him. Otherwise, he's going to say, there he is. That's him right there. Go arrest him. I hate him. No, he kissed him. The Judas kiss. The betrayal with a greeting. Acting like you love someone. You ever been caught like that? Bad-mouthing someone and they walk around the corner and you go, oh, hey. Hey, good to see you. Hypocritical liar. 
I've done that. I, I've, I've been caught that way. Sitting there bad-mouthing someone. They walk around, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, what's going on? How you doing? You look fantastic. You know, and then go away going, I'm such a loser. This is Judas at this point. But Jesus said to him in verse 48, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Go to Matthew 26 again. Twenty-six forty-seven. while he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, behold Judas, that word behold in the New American Standard Bible, it, it adds drama to the situation. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss is the one, seize him means to lay hands on him. Seize Jesus. See, up to this point, Judas has watched Jesus escape the jaws of death on a handful of occasions, hasn't he? People took Jesus to the edge of the city on a couple of occasions to kill him, and what did Jesus do? He kind of departed from their midst. He's watched him escape. Judas wants to leave nothing to chance. Seize him. Grab him. Don't let him go. He's the one that I kiss when you see him, grab him. Verse 49, immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, which is greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Friend? Is Jesus saying, Hey, pal, good to see you, friend. We might say, hey, chump, hey, bud, pal, what kind of a friend are you? It's a false friend, isn't it? Jesus knows what he's doing. He sent him out. He knows he's going to betray him. None of this is catching our Lord off, off of his game. He knows. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Verse 49, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, that's going to be the, the 11 disciples. Lord. Remember the last thing they said prior to this in verse 38. Lord, we've got two swords. Yeah, Jesus said, yeah, we'll go with the legions of Rome, and we've got two swords. Because he says there, it's enough. But really he means, there's enough of this ridiculous talk. But as this unfolds, I, I like the the... What seems like the bravado of, of the 11 disciples, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Our two swords? And verse 50 says, and one of them, without waiting for an answer from Jesus, one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not tell us which disciple that was. John does. John tells us it was Peter. Why? Because John writes after Peter's dead. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter's still alive when they wrote. Peter would have been in all kinds of trouble if he's been exposed. Yeah, it was Peter. John could be able to go and say the name. That's probably, the, we're not told that, but that seems to be the, the way. One of them comes forward. Now, if you've looked at this with any 
degree of scrutiny, you think, how do you cut off a guy's ear? I mean, if you grab someone, put them, you know, give them a noogie, and then hold still, let me cut your ear off. That, that maybe, but I don't think that's what happened. <laughs> and this is not a sword, you know, a marine sword or anything. This is going to be a dagger. And I think Peter comes out, waving, come here, aiming for the head, probably a glancing blow, maybe Jesus glancing his arm off, and he slides into the side of the man's head and cuts his ear off. I guess. I still don't know how you cut an ear off. Of all the things that could be cut, it's pretty close to the head. It's pretty safe. My guess is that that sword, however, landed flush on the man's skull. It probably hurt. We know that his name was Malchus from John's Gospel. And we know that he was a slave of the high priest. The high priest was Caiaphas. The slave of that high priest was there. And Peter took, Peter took aim and got his right ear. Verse 51, Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. Note this. And he touched his ear and healed him. <laughs> if you've read that like I have, you've read it a thousand times over the course of your life. But don't miss it. Jesus didn't have to do that. And he did it in front of everyone. Everyone saw him. Peter comes out swinging a sword. The man gets hit in the head. His ear's cut off. And Jesus touches it. And what's bleeding is no longer bleeding. He's healed. And we're told nothing else about it after that. Touched him and he healed him. Just all in a day's work for Jesus. And then Jesus shames them. He shames their cowardice. Verse 52, he said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the temple and the elders who had come out against him. In other words, you guys, it's like one o'clock in the morning. Really? You all got up out of bed to come out here in the garden to arrest me with all of these people and all of these clubs and these lanterns and torches and swords. Really, guys? I've been in the temple every day this week teaching out in the open. Why didn't you arrest me then? Cowards, because you knew the people would rail against you. So come get me at night. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Verse 53, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. John speaks of that hour throughout his gospel. Jesus goes here, he's in danger, but his hour had not yet come. My hour, Jesus will say, has not yet come. Not my hour. It's not my hour. Now the hour has come. But it's the hour of darkness. Because before the hour that Jesus is crucified and where he dies, it's the hour of darkness. It's not necessarily 60 minutes. It's an era, a time period. The power of darkness, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And that hour prevailed, didn't it? Jesus willingly went with them. We'll pick up next week where he's gone and he's put on these kangaroo trials. But let me make a few observations before we go. I want you to notice something about prayer. Is that when tempted to sin, you pray. You know when you're being tempted. You know what tempts you. You know it right now. You might, might be in a situation right now it's tempting. When you are tempted, make sure that you notate it. Pray about it. 
God's not going to take it from you. You have to remove yourself from the situation. And I would say this. Pray three times. Not for temptation. You pray that over the course of your life. But there are some things we pray for that you only need three times. Some things, not all things. I've said this before. There are some situations in life, perhaps it's the salvation of a loved one. Do you know that God heard you the first time when you prayed that? Why did you pray it a second time? To somehow twist God's arm? To get more out of God? Maybe you didn't hear me, Lord. I want my son to be saved. Maybe you didn't hear me, Lord. I'm angry that my son isn't saved. God heard you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Leave that with the Lord. Pray it three times and say, they're your people. I love my son, but I know you love him more. Your will be done, right? It's interesting that the apostle Paul also prayed three times for that thorn in his flesh, isn't it? Remove it, Lord. God said, no, no, no. My grace is sufficient. In fact, Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Deal with that. There are some things when you know it's not God's will and you've prayed, Lord, your will, not mine, leave it alone. God heard me one time. I prayed it twice. I prayed it three times. He heard me. I know he did. And God doesn't forget. God's will be done. Folks, you can relieve yourself of a lot of stress, even depression, by leaving a request with him. I made fun of my friend Craig here this morning. I went up to him and I said, did you tell your wife you love her today? She answered, no. Which is funny because I asked him the question. (laughs) And he said, well, I told her in the past. Good. Ladies, you like to be told you love, you're loved by your husband every day? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sheepies. <laughs> Ladies, do you want your husband to tell you that he loves you more than once a lifetime? Yes. Do you want it to be, honey, I really love you, and here's why. Or do you want, I love you. Love you. Love you. Or you write a little, heart you. Heart you. (laughs) All of those things are good. You're right, Charlie. Stay alert. God, keep me alert. The devil is lurking. There's a dimension that you and I don't see. It surrounds us. He wants one thing, God's people. He wants one thing. He wants God's people. He wanted Job, he wanted to show God that Job ain't quite so good. He wanted to show Jesus that Peter and the apostles weren't quite so good. If he's after you and the trials that you have in your life, he's trying to show God that your faith is not real. Pray that you not fall into his traps. They're everywhere. Know what's happening. Be alert to what's happening. And by the way, note this prayer for all its power, does not change God. You are not going to change God. Prayer is meant to God to change us. And so the longer you spend on your knees or standing up and looking at the sky, hands in the air, hands not in the air, laying on your back, laying on your stomach, laying prostrate, whatever it is, note God is changing you. Stop with all the Lord, please, 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 give me this, give me that. Ask God to change you. 
That's one of the greatest quotes I ever heard. I heard it as a youth. Prayer is not the means by which we change God. Prayer is the means through which God transforms us. To where we come away saying, not my will, Lord, yours. You'll note that Jesus remained firm in spite of the horrors that waited for him. He remained firm. Will you? In your darkest hour? When things aren't going your way? When things are caving in and crashing in and God seemingly has not answered your prayer, are you going to stay faithful? I ask every kid, every child, every young person that wants to be baptized, I ask them this. If I, what if I, your pastor, decided one day that Christianity is not true? What if your parents decided one day Christianity is not true? I don't believe that anymore. Would you, young 15-year-old, continue in your faith? Or do you believe it because I believe it? Do you believe it because they believe it? Is it real or not? Too many kids will say, well, if my mom and dad don't believe it, they must know something I don't. I'm not going to believe it anymore either. I had one young man tell me, he said, well, if I know my dad. He said, when I was giving the gospel, he said, I know my dad, who's dead, did not believe that. He did not believe the gospel. He said, so when I die, I want to go and be with him so I am not receiving the gospel. He told me that. I'm not making that up. One of my young sister's boyfriends. And I thought, all he wants to do is be with his dad. I told him where his dad was. That didn't go over too well. Because that's where you are when you don't receive Jesus Christ. Never comes out good. People never go, oh, gee, thanks for telling me that. Jesus remained faithful and firm in spite of what awaited him. As a pastor, I've got to think the same thing. I don't know what awaits me. The life of being a pastor at Harvest Bible Church over the last 24 years has been a delight. But there could be a day where the troops come in and arrest me for hate speech, right? That's coming, we think. It happens in other countries. It happens in parts of our country. Happens in our neighboring country of, of Canada. They ship those guys out. Put them in jail. If I knew that was coming, would I keep doing it? Would I say, let's open it because we're going to do Romans next. I got Romans 1 to teach. That's not going to be real politically correct. Do I need to avoid that? Well, let's just, you know, you know what it says. Let me not preach it. I'm going to preach it. And if I get arrested, let me be arrested. So be it. I don't want to be. And you're going to bail me out, right? We don't know that yet either. You probably have a church meeting going, is he really worth it? Come on. (laughs) Doug's a good preacher too. Let's just save the money. Also, when you pray, unload your burdens just like Jesus did on God. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking. You might as well tell him. Don't hold back. You're lying to him if you're not telling him your real feelings. God, here's how I feel. I'm, I'm angry. Get it out and then get over it. God's will be done. If God's wrath caused fear in the Son of God, ought it not cause fear to us? Even though we're Christians, ought we not be in fear for those we know don't know Jesus? Ought we not sweat drops of blood, as it were, for people we know will enter into the gates of hell? That's the problem today. People don't fear God. They don't fear God, and God is their enemy. 
God is the enemy. Satan is their friend. God is the enemy. Jesus Christ brokers the peace deal between us and God. Jesus tells in Peter, in, uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew, he tells Peter, he said, um, put that sword away. He said, don't you know if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels to be at my disposal? That's, by the way, it's 72,000 angels. He said, he that, that lives by the sword will die by the sword. And so I thought about that. What is the sword in the Bible? What is the spiritual sword? The sword Spirit of God, the Word of God. If the person who lives by the sword will die by the sword, that's not what Jesus meant in the context, but let's make our new context in the application. We live by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God will die by that sword. You in? Jesus went to his death. We might go to ours. He paved the way. Life is difficult. Life throws difficult times at us. Things we did not count on. Expect it. Mull it over in your minds before it happens because when it does, you will stand firm. Lord, I knew this was coming. I thought it might come. But I am your servant. Not my will, but yours be done. My will is this. It's real pretty. It's everything that blesses me in this church. That's my will. Might not end that way, my friends. Not my will, but yours be done. My will is to grow old with the wife that I love and have my kids be at my bedside and let me see my grandkids as I die. That's my will. Might not be that way. No guarantees. Can you live with that? Can you pray to not fall into temptation? The faithfulness of our Lord gives us so many things to mull, to pray for, to be like. May we be like Him in our darkest, worst hour. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity, me personally, to to help lead in, in the worship through song, to preach your word. Who am I? I'm a nobody. Your grace to me is beyond words. I don't understand it, but I thank you for it. God, I pray for us as a church, Harvest Bible Church, and for the church universal, that we would be faithful, faithful to the end. We live in a day of darkness. Well, the powers of darkness are at work. And we pray for our own selves and for others, for each other, not to fall into temptation. It's everywhere. It's all around us. It wants us. May we be found faithful when you arrive on the scene. Come, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord God Almighty, who lives and gives us life, bless you. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Walding, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 